Oxford Dictionary recently named post-truth its word of the year. Post-truth. Shortly thereafter, commenting on the latest uh, presidential inauguration, Kellyanne Conway famously spoke of alternative facts. In response, Time blazoned the question, is truth dead in an April cover? Then in 2018, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani claimed truth isn't truth during an interview with Chuck Todd on NBC. Of course, let's not forget Bill Clinton splitting hairs over the definition of sexual relations and existentially pondering what an author's definition of is is back in 1998. The cultural view of truth cuts both ways across the political aisle in this post-truth age. Understanding that cultural sway, I think it makes this statement from Hosea 3.1 even more astounding. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You would hope this sermon had food in it. There you go. All right. <laughs> Hosea provides no clue as to when, where, or how the Lord made contact with him, but he simply states the glorious words, the Lord said to me. May we never take for granted that we serve a living God who is communicating with his creation. What an amazing thing. That phrase, actually, of the Lord saith or the Lord said to me is used over 400 times in the Bible. It's a thread of hope to this world that is parched for truth and reality and clarity. We live in an epistemological vacuum where truth is limited to opinion and nothing more. The world observes division politically, hypocrisy religiously, and says along with Pilate, what is truth? And Jesus answers, I am the truth. He also said for this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. The truth is not only the person of Christ, but it's the propositions that emanate from Christ in the Word of God. And until people come to grips with this reality, they are like one clinching to only a MacBook in a sea. They're overcome by the waves. They are lost in the ocean. Why? Because all they have is digital information, but it's not truth. And we're drowning in this digital information. Identity and gender politics, education without a sure moral compass, the idol of science, not science itself, but making an idol of science, all point to human beings completely lost at sea. What is truth? Of course, many people claim 
that they have the Word of God other than the Bible. You, and anybody can make a claim, this is the revelation of God from some other book. A lot of people do that. But a claim is not the same as the truth. We have to be able to discern truth from error. It's not to say that everything I say is the truth. I'm not claiming I am the possessor of all truth. I'm not claiming that I am the standard. I mean, I, I want to be as consistent as I can be, but it's not about me. It's not even about Christ Community Church. We want it to proclaim the truth. But the word of God stands separate in the Bible as any other book of antiquity. Thankfully, God has accompanied his word with corresponding miracles in the testimony of Christ. It's written with unity, without contradiction. We, we are provided for with bibliographical, archaeological, historical evidence to support it. And then you have the verifiable prophecy about the life of Christ where over 300 prophecies have already been fulfilled, specific prophecies about Jesus' coming that include his crucifixion, his resurrection, the triumphal entry of Christ predicted to the very day centuries before. It's unlike any other book. And others who make such a claim cannot hold a match to the attestation of the Bible. The Lord is still speaking through his word. And then Hosea says this, go again and love. It's probably something that every couple has needed to hear at one time or another. Go again and love. But the againness of God's repeated, determined love for Israel is to be Hosea's purpose and passion. Here, grace continues in the disappointment of human performance. And isn't that the very definition of grace? We don't need grace until we don't perform up to snuff, until we disappoint, then we need grace. He was to go to Gomer, his wife. If you're not familiar with the story, Gomer was Hosea's wife. She cheated on him multiple times. Really doesn't deserve reconciliation from her performance. She had done every maligning thing she could do to scuttle Hosea's career as a prophet and scathe his moral sensibilities. Imagine me standing up here as a pastor and you knowing, by the way, my wife is a prostitute. You got any problem with that? We would have all problems with that, would we not? But imagine a prophet, Hosea, having that. The depiction of Hosea 3 is a predate miniature of the gospel. God continues to love and pursue when we continue to sin. And rather than responding favorably to Hosea's initial overtures, Gomer was turning to other gods and securing the sacred raisin cakes as well as Israel was doing the same thing. It was a picture of Israel. The raisin cakes were used in pagan worship, played a role in the Baal worship. And if you're wondering about the definition of adulteress, it means she's married but faithless 
to her husband. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a letic of barley. Now, where does Hosea go and find his wife? It seems that Gomer was sent away after her initial indiscretions. She fell into poverty, and she got herself to the point where she was a slave in order to pay her debt, in order to survive. It's worth mentioning that the type of slavery then is different than the slavery that was in our country a couple hundred years ago, where you had constant ill treatment with this involuntary servitude. Slavery in the Old Testament was associated with labor to pay off a debt. I'm not suggesting either of them were right. I'm just saying they were different. Exodus 21:32 spoke of a situation that if you accidentally killed a slave, you owed the slave owner 30 shekels of silver. Gomer's price was actually half that in silver. The rest, the barley, was considered fit only for animals. The important thing here is that Hosea obeys, buys Gomer from someone else. We can't be sure what these measurements were of a, of a homer and a lethic were in terms of measurement. Some actually think it may have made up for the other 15 shekels, but the bottom line is Gomer had to be bought free from her slavery. It reminds me of the prodigal son. Finds himself in a pig pen. We usually do not consider the consequences of our sin when we're in rebellion, but that's part of the deception of sin, that you'll somehow get away with it, that there'll be no real consequences, whether it's adultery or unforgiveness. We think it's just some random consequence that might come, but living in a moral universe that God has set up, it kind of guarantees there are going to be some kind of reaction or consequence. People don't think God is active and able to impute a consequence to our actions. It's one of the things that Friedrich Nietzsche hated about what Christianity taught was this judgment that we would have to stand before God. He, he found that to be worth condemning. But the attitude of many, if you think about it, they may not put it in philosophical form, but you have many who don't study for a test, and then they expect to do well. And if they flunk, they blame the teacher because he's too hard. Or don't show up on time at work and then complain and then wonder why they don't get promoted. I mean, the correlation of consequences to action are a part of living in a moral universe. We can't expect to consistently mistreat our spouse, berate them, and then have a loving marriage. We can't expect to routinely not keep our promises with our children and then expect them to trust and respect us. We see bitterness and unforgiveness dividing families. These consequences are not the result of, you know, some kind of evolutionary process. 
The Apostle Paul pointed to the real impetus of this moral law, you might call it. And it's in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing well, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Hosea then expands on this verse. And here in verse three, he applies it personally to Gomer and to himself. In verse four, he'll apply it to Israel. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I be also to you. Business is not going to be as usual with Gomer when she comes home. It's not possible to pick things up and just go on like nothing happened because of her affair with various lovers. Too much pain has occurred because of the adultery. Trust will have to be rebuilt. It's a matter of forgiveness and rebuilding trust. It's a matter of hearts needing time to rest again and wounds needing a a safe environment to heal. And if there was a reoccurrence of the adultery, you go back to step one. Lessons have to be learned to work out what God is working in. And what must happen is that there be no physical relations, at least in this case, with all the lovers that Gomer had and with Hosea for a period of time. Gomer must learn to control her passions. Enough time should pass in total abstinence until the two of them could resume the normal life of a husband and a wife. So they have to wait on each other. I actually talked to one man who had an addiction and agreed through his counselor, along with his wife, to have no relations for his wife for a year. This is after having been married for a great number of years. To build back trust in the relationship and to learn that the relationship was far more than just the physical. They both agreed, and he did it. And such a time was entered into as a part of repentance. I'm not suggesting you do that every time. There's been infidelity. I'm just saying that's what they did, and it tells us that it at least was possible when there was an agreement to do that. I'm not even suggesting every marriage can endure adultery, especially the serial continuing kind, which makes the actions of Hosea even more extraordinary. Did you catch the phrase, so will I also be to you? Hosea was making a sacrifice as well. You know, we don't read of him contemplating. I don't want to read too much in because this is more of an argument from silence, but we don't read of him contemplating, arguing with God. God speaks and Hosea follows. 
He demonstrates humility and a a great sense of self-sacrificing love. Just ask yourself, if you would want to be in the picture with your spouse if they are guilty of multiple sexual infractions. Hmm? I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible. But we'd have to agree it is only by the supernatural power of God. I mean, it's one thing to just stay together and never talk to each other, but it's another thing to actually be on a road to good health. That seems supernatural to me. I've actually seen a marriage repaired after the husband had entered into multiple paid interactions with prostitutes. They'd been, they'd been married now for decades. And it's only occurred because the offended spouse demonstrated great grace. And by the way, she was no pushover. She demanded certain measures be in place. So it is possible, even under the worst of conditions, to see relational health regained. But it takes a miracle. It takes a supernatural action. And when we see these things, we get a glimpse. You know what? Maybe... Maybe that's how God's responding to us, with great grace. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household goods. In short, Israel's going to be without a monarchy, without priesthood, and without any idols. And when this time ends, idolatry will not return, but there will be purified True worship. They will be, the passage says, without king or prince. She'll be without a reigning monarch for a time. And ultimately, a monarch will come, has promised by God through the Davidic line. Listen to Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And we see Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise when it was declared in Luke 1. He will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and and of his kingdom there will be no end. So what do you say for the month of December? We just celebrate that and call it Christmas, all right? Even though Israel will be without a king for now in Hosea's time, and beyond, they will find ultimate fulfillment when Jesus reigns. However, Israel to date has still rejected her Davidic king, Jesus. And they repeat the phrase that's in Luke, we will not want this man to reign over us. These are supposed to be God's people. We don't want this man to reign over us. And I wonder how many Christians today in their heart are saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. It is my life. 
It's my money. It's my body. I'm going to do with it what I want. I don't want this man to tell us what to do. And the Bible says my body's not even my own. It's my spouse's for intimacy, for love. Whatever hang-ups I have, I'm to give to my spouse. That's, a, that's an idea that is so foreign to our world today. Temple that I can, in actual worship, give myself to my spouse. Amazing thing. We want this man to reign over us. <laughs> Ought to be words that we can say every day, Father, Lord Jesus, I want you to reign over me. I want you to reign over my money. I want you to reign over my home. Pray over your children that they will give their hearts to him, that he will reign over them. Because ultimately, every piece of rebellion we have, whether it's with job, with the spouse, whatever it is, goes back to settling the core issue of whether Jesus is reigning over us. The day is still future when we will all, with Israel, bow our knee to Jesus and his people will love him. It says without sacrifice or pillar. It's a reference to the cessation of formal religious public activity. There were legitimate ways that stone was used in Genesis for God's people, like in memorials, but it later was used for idol worship, to Baal. The same with their legitimate sacrifices under the Levitical system was used. And then got to be prostituted to use for Baal worship. The point of, of all this is it's all going to cease. Israel would be without any religious system. It'd be like an addict quitting cold turkey on all substances. For Israel, only the healing, patient waiting on the presence of God would be acceptable. I gotta throw all this other stuff away. I'm not gonna depend on the external structures that got in the way. Jose also adds, without ephod or household goods, ephod refers to the sacred garments of priests spoken about in Exodus 28. The household goods are little trinkets or articles that were put in the home that focused on Baal. All the personal and public religious systems were to be gone. And Israel used all this stuff to lean on the external trappings and not God. And they were to leave it all and concentrate on their heart being devoted to God. You know, it seems sometimes with all the stuff that Christianity throws at us, sometimes we need cleansed. We need a fasting. Amos made clear to Israel, I hate I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
Just like Israel replaced the very presence and word of God with external displays. It seems like many Christians can lose their way. I don't think it's necessarily intentional by faith communities, but if you listen to the speech, you learn uh, that people are equating you know, what's called the presence of God with certain styles of music, the size of the church, certain types of um, you know, songs that are sung, and then, you know, smaller, less entertaining, simpler expressions are not deemed as having the same spiritual heft. I'll tell you what, I always relate it to romance because Israel is called a her, the bride of Christ is called a her. And I think of it in terms of my wife. For me, because I love her, it'll be 40 years in two weeks, that woman could have a burlap sack on, it would be beautiful to me. I don't care what she wears. But let me tell you what she doesn't need. She doesn't need to flaunt her stuff to me because I already love her and adore her. She doesn't need to distract with wearing the kinds of clothing that take away from her inner beauty. She doesn't need that for me in terms of trying to gain my love. I'm already there. I already adore her. I already want to spend time with her. And I think for the church, sometimes it seems like we think, you know, we got to put on the Ritz, wear all this extra stuff. And all I'm saying is, I'm not sure it's needed. I don't want to condemn anybody for what they're doing. I'm just saying, for me, you know, I, I don't need a star athlete to impress, uh, impress to me the importance of the gospel. I love it when famous people come to Christ. I don't need a moderator who seems to have drunk way too much coffee to hype me up for the service. I don't need smoke from the stage. I don't need sparks coming out of Gary's ears as he leads worship, all right? I don't need a far too rehearsed presentation about God that only talks about the benefits without dealing with the doubts and the problems that people have with God or with the household of faith. That just is more real. And the more separated what goes on on the stage, the more separated it is from real life. To me, that just seems not terribly healthy. I mean, there are some, there are some uh, uh, congregations that you can't even play an instrument. So they would think we're just way too Branson-y or Hollywood or whatever, right? So you you realize there are always people at different points on the spectrum. So I'm not here to, to get on any particular group's case, but just to say that we have to ask ourselves. every congregation has to do this, ask yourself the tough questions. I cannot equate effectiveness or the movement of God with these external things, as beautiful and as awesome as it is. Mark Horst wrote this. The current phrase, worship experience, merely serves to confuse us. Those who worship with the expectation that the act ought to generate certain experiences for them will undoubtedly have many experiences, but they will probably not be the sort of experiences that Christian worship offers to those who seek only the face of God through song, prayer, 
preaching, and sacrament. Liturgists often generate many powerful experiences, but when experience is the aim, this becomes cheap theater at best and manipulation at worst. Both are repulsive substitutes for an encounter with the power of the living God. It's at least worth considering. Some are duped and in the process cannot discern a useless noise, as Amos talks about, from righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The external trappings are not indispensable. It's why I appreciate so much the genuine worship that Gary and his team displays. Without constant theater, it's like what we call undistracted excellence. Undistracted excellence. That ought to be our goal in expressing our praise to the Lord. We don't want to get distracted from him. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This passage ends with a tremendous call for hope. Aren't we glad? Aren't you glad that we're not going to stay in this mess? But there will be a time when God's people are not duped they will worship God in fear and trembling. That's a, those are good words for the Christian when seen in the right context because I know God has created a moral universe. There are consequences to my sin. Even as this child, I know that there will be consequences to my sin. I'm not punished in the sense of eternity, but there are consequences. And then there will be a time in which we're all drawn to the goodness of God and loving him. That time is coming. I like what Romans 11 says. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Israel's faith will be restored. Baal will be gone, idol worship from their religious life. And they will worship one day only God, the true God. And notice this turning will come afterward, after the exile, and in the latter days, the gospel age. It's going to be consummated with the kingly reign of Christ. And we look forward to that kingly reign of Christ. So I know whatever I'm going through here, okay, whatever laws get passed that I don't like, all right, all of that persecution to Christians that might come, all of that, it's still only a blip on the screen to eternity. And Jesus Christ will one day reign. You know what? I'm willing to go to the dentist and have my teeth drilled when I know in the end there's going to be a good result and the pain won't last forever. In 2004, the shoreline of Sri Lanka was devastated by a a horrifying tsunami that took nearly 40,000 lives. One of the strange discoveries that was found when the tsunami happened was that animals, before it even arrived on the shores, were running in the other direction. 
sensing that there was danger. The picture of that to me is rather awesome. We don't live in a crippling fear, but anticipation that this mess that we're in doesn't last forever and our redemption draws nigh. I'm looking forward to it and I'm walking towards the redemption. We have great hope and great urgency. One of my dearest friends who passed away a couple years ago, Craig Fields, was a pastor here in town, had two double lung transplants. Before his first one, we sat down to breakfast. He wanted me to do his funeral. It was rather an odd thing to sit there to be talking to somebody about how they want their funeral done. But there were multiple questions and things we talked about. We talked about his family, struggles that he has in his life. It was one of the most vulnerable, open conversations I've ever been a part of. And what struck me about the conversation is like we were drifting from present life to eternity. And he was so at home in either one. It was a beautiful thing to behold. He loved the idea of being with Christ. He loved his wife and his children. But the truth be known, he was looking forward to being with his Savior. He'd miss his wife, at least for a time. But I'd like to have that comfortableness in this life with eternity and knowing it's just right around the corner. I don't know. It could be today. I mean, if the Broncos beat the Chiefs, I will have a heart attack. (laughs) And I will welcome that. Can we travel easily between eternity and this life in terms of our thinking and welcome him, welcome his reign, welcome his kingdom, his thinking, his attitude? 